Welcome to Too Smart for This, a podcast dedicated to knowing better and doing better for ourselves and others, hosted by me, Alexis Barber. In this show, we invite real people and experts to share their stories about how they navigate an ever-demanding society and talk about the personal decisions we make from career to health and wellness. Let's get into it. everyone and welcome back to another episode of Too Smart for This. Today I had the absolute pleasure, can she speak? Pleasure of interviewing Lisa Haim from The Well Necessities or the formerly known as The Well Necessities. Lisa, I can't even explain how much this conversation as well as her impact on me has been so helpful. I mean, she is dives deep into so many of the parts of wellness and dieting and nutrition that we don't think about, our introspection, our connection with ourselves, and even the neuroscience of it. And she is very inspiring in the way that she practices being so intuitive with herself, her emotions, her food, and her experiences, as well as her clients. So today we really dove deep into a lot of important topics that I think will help anyone who is thinking about how to have a healthier relationship with food, how to move away from diet culture, how to truly make that step towards loving oneself. So I am so grateful that Lisa was able to come on the podcast. If you don't know who she is, she is a dietitian and founder of The Well Necessities. She has two courses, um, which we get into in this episode. She also has two podcasts. One is The Truthiest Life and the other is Outweigh with Amy Brown and Lisa Haim. So please make sure to check that out. Check her out on Instagram and please enjoy this conversation we had because it was really beautiful and I am so, so grateful that she was able to come on the podcast. So without further ado, here we go. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so, so much for your time again. I really appreciate it and you've been such an incredible, you know, like, person to look up to in these past few months. So I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you. And you've been one for me as well. So, you know, it's funny because I'm a lot older than you, but I really do look up to you in many, many ways. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I really loved our conversation on Outweigh. Like I told you, that was definitely like my favorite conversation I've gotten to have like on a podcast because I feel like you ask such incredible questions and I'm really grateful for that. Oh, and what part did you like the most? Like what felt the most you that we could kind of, that we got out of you? Um, I guess this idea that it wasn't, it's like, I guess the frustration with myself with wanting to both like care about food and what I looked like, but also the um, financial and the race part of everything wow. and how deeply like that impacted what I felt like I needed to look like or do or be, you know? Yeah, your your story is so interesting to me, and I learned so much, not just about you, but about um, kind of the things that are just so normalized. So yeah, for anyone mm-hmm. listening that doesn't know what we're talking about, I co-host a podcast called Outweigh on Disordered Eating with my friend Amy Brown, and um, Alexis was one of our, I think you were our first guest of season two, yeah. Oh, yes. And we had a great conversation because, you know, you're just such a fresh look at all of this, and I think with a fresh eyes and a young age to quit dieting. It's it's so interesting to me. Thank yeah. I mean, it was it's an incredible podcast. You also host the Truthiest Life. Just a little plug for that. It's been incredible. I was looking at the 
um, episode today and even the quote you posted um, from Cornell Thomas, I believe it was. Yep. Um, was It really got me. I'm really excited to listen. So that all aside, um, a question I really want to start off with is what has been the most life-changing thing you've learned in 2020? Okay. I like this question. You know, I am a very mindful, self-aware person. It's something that I, you know, I'm naturally self-aware, but I'm intentionally mindful. That's something that I've learned. Um, But the thing I think that I've learned, at least most recently, is just that joy is not found in these big moments that we plan for and we wait for. Um, Just for example, weddings and, um, you know, those life big moments or high paying jobs or getting promoted, you know, those bring kind of like fleeting moments of joy until it's onto the next thing. Um, you know, wedding, then you're talking about babies, then you're talking about a house and all that Mm. stuff. And, um, same thing with a job, you get promoted, then you're, you know, trying to impress people or make them, you know, feel like they chose the right person for that job. But for me, I have really taken a big step back to recognize that joy or kind of find joy is found in micro moments and I need to cultivate them. Um, I'm somebody that struggles with mental health and, you know, it's not depression in the sense of every day I, I can't get out of bed, but it is hard to get out of bed sometimes for no reason. Everything in my life is wonderful. I'm a happy person, but I just struggle. And so cultivating joy in these moments can look like going for a walk and looking at the leaves and watching them change color or, you know, putting my work down an hour earlier and walking over to see my niece who's six years old and put my cell phone down and just be present. Um, And I think that these micro moments are forgotten because we're so connected to our devices. At least I am, you know, with a big part of my job on social media, it's very easy to work all of the time. And while there is a lot of joy in what I do and in social media, it also creates a feeling in my body that I don't necessarily like. (laughs) So joy in micro moments, recognizing that productivity is not defined by, you know, work so much and getting things done off the checklist. It's done by almost not being productive in the traditional sense that we think of it as. Yeah. So do you feel like maybe that realization or that, you know, um, I guess decision to cultivate joy as opposed to expect it from big things, like comes from a place of like self-love first or does it come from a place of like just discipline and needing to try new things like or maybe a place from just like previously not allowing yourself to feel joy like where where do you feel like that comes from great question I think it comes from curiosity discipline is not a word that sits well with me I've never done well with discipline in any aspect of my life um and there's nothing wrong with working towards a goal and being disciplined. But as soon as I put mm-hmm. discipline on myself, I do the opposite. Like, I'm the know, husband, same way. <laughs> my husband always laughs. Like I go to a workout class and I will not follow the instructor. Like I have to defy it in some way. And um, so for me, one of the, the best things that I've learned to be this year is just curious. Where is this joy? Where am I noticing it in surprising moments and then bringing it into my life Um, and cultivating it that way. So, you know, recognizing that when I go for a walk without music, for example, that brings me joy. 
I'm being curious. Oh, what does this feel like? Why is this different than other moments of my life? Why, what is this good feeling in my body and how can I bring it to life in perhaps the moments where I need it? And so I'd say curiosity is the motivation behind it. And I've become, I'd say in 2020, a really good observer of my thoughts. And that's something that I can't stress enough for everybody to observe your thoughts because we all have thoughts, but thoughts are not always real. And we need to recognize when we're having thoughts that are not real and when we're circling them. So we have um, about 60,000 thoughts per day, but 98% of them are the ones that come from the day before. And so we're kind of not, yeah, we're not shifting out of it because we're, we're, we're stuck and our, you know, there's an expression in neuroscience that says that says neurons that fire together wire together. So we think something and then it leads us into the next thought and the next behavior. And we think something, it leads us into the next thought and behavior. But if you can notice that thought, and this is really important for body image stuff, by the way, if you can begin to notice that thought and then create a new one, even if it's really awkward at first and you perhaps don't believe it, you're creating a new neural pathway in that moment that's even easier to kind of reroute to the next time. But it's only if you're observing your thoughts from a higher place. Wow. Well, she just dropped some knowledge on us. <laughs> well, that's in- insane to think about. The 98% from the day before can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that is so interesting. Yeah. So I think these these negative thoughts can really circle us. And I mean, when it comes to body image, I give this example a lot. And um, I just assume that naturally people might relate to this one. You know, you look down at your body and you're, the first thing you do is you, you, see, you see it as it is, quote unquote, as fat. And so every time you look at your body, you're conditioned to now judge it and call it fat. And then what happens next? You turn to action. I'm not going to eat this food. I'm, I'm going to jump back on this diet or this protocol or whatever. And you feed back into that loop. But what if you look down at your body, notice, had the thought, the same thought occurred. I'm fat. I look fat. I'm ugly, whatever it is. And you were observing your thought as if you were a third person or a second person in the room rather. So from above. And you said, whoa, that's, that's really abrasive to speak to yourself that way. What could you say to your body that isn't a lie, but might not necessarily be as truthful to yourself? So it might not be you look beautiful and radiant as you are, if that's not where you're at yet. But can you bring some truth to it, such as, well, I'm really happy that my body has shown up for me and can digest food properly. You know, I'm just kind of giving okay. a random example. And again, that first time, it's going to feel awkward. It might even feel cheesy for some people, especially because self-disgust is so normalized in our world. We've heard our mothers do it and our grandmothers do it and even men do it. Um, I, I really don't want to leave men out of the conversation as much as I have at times. It's just normalized in our culture, period. And so being loving to yourself can feel wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it can. And it does a lot of times. Right. And it's not because, you know, think about just I, yesterday I posted on my story about a friend of mine who's not a blogger or anything, but she put a picture of herself like a selfie on her story. And I thought it was beautiful. I sent hearts back. You could just tell that. I guess I could say it's not that she felt beautiful, but I could tell that she needed some love and she did look beautiful to me. She looked radiant. And um, the next story she put up was and was defending herself for putting that story up because someone said that it was her asking for attention. And I just thought that was so ridiculous to really Truly. take a step 
bag of uh, what we've been taught is, you know, nip, tuck, pluck, fix, get thinner, do change, all, change your hair color, remove your body hair, you know, and, and no judgment to anybody who does any of these things. I do these things, whatever we need to do to do that. But then when, for, if for a moment we feel okay in our skin and we capture it, it's considered conceited or arrogant. And it's like, wait a minute. So what are we doing this for? Right. Right. And it's not for the world. So it's not for that, but there's nothing wrong with showing up in the world, proud in your skin. And we need to reframe the way we take down other women as well. Totally. And I mean, I think this is part of what I wanted to get at in our previous conversation on outweigh is that in my, like I said, in my sorority house, you had to be perfect, but you couldn't admit you were once you actually achieved it, you know? And it's like, we wanted to be this like, you know, idealistic, like very smart, successful, beautiful, thin person. And then the second, like, I like that's sort of part of the reason I didn't even want my Instagram to be public was because the second I was proud of myself for being that people would just I felt like people would just hate me all of a sudden um, because we're not, we don't allow ourselves to, you know, be happy in the moment or we don't allow other people to be happy without wanting to attack them for this wild reason. I think that that was so interesting to me. And it's, I think it's also very like generational of this like idea that you're, you can't, you have to look like you're not trying hard. That's what you said on our podcast. Yeah. And that like blew my mind because it's true. It's like even these TikTok stars, it's like effortless to them. But like now I'm thinking, is it effortless to them or did they record it for six hours and then just make it look effortless? <laughs> right. And it's like, but they also couldn't like they have to record it in sweats to seem like they weren't trying that hard. Right. You know? Yeah. That that was so eye opening about, you, you know, not your generation necessarily, but younger generations. Um, my brother's 16 and like, he'll post like the most random photos on his story where like, you don't even know where he is, whatever. doesn't matter. But <laughs> the point is, is that, yeah, it's like, why do we have to pretend like we're not to get to that place where we're somewhere and then act like it was no big deal? Like, let's yeah. show that it's a big deal, that exactly. I, it's okay to like myself. I look good right now. Right. Exactly. It's okay to like ourselves. And it's like, we struggle so much with the path to liking ourselves like you've talked about so what for you like you are obviously very educated in the mindfulness part of this um but in addition to being a dietitian so what made you want to really focus on like how we think about ourselves I think that was kind of like an after part for me um you know growing up and in college you know everyone always kind of told me you should be a therapist you should be a therapist but I knew I didn't want to be a therapist and because um, I'm very sensitive to energy. I didn't have a word for it at that point, but I knew that, you know, doing one-on-ones with people all day long would really leave me burnt to a crisp. I didn't know how to explain mm -hmm. that, but I just knew that it would. Now I'm better able to articulate um, how I am. I love to help people, but I can take on people's emotions too much. So um, anyway, going back to your question, nutrition kind of felt like a way to help people, but not a way, but in a little bit differently. But through my own journey, I found that the way I help people is less, you know, eat this, don't eat this, but rather let me guide you into learning what you're eating and why you're eating it. So in doing so, it kind of takes getting into the psyche a little bit, you know, very much still staying in my lane as to what I'm certified to do and so forth. But, you know, for me, 
I didn't set forth to be on a journey of recovering from disordered eating. When I was disordered, when I was eating disordered, when I did have disordered eating, I didn't know I had disordered eating. And when I was studying nutrition, all of that was normalized as, um, you know, eating healthy and she cares about that and, and so forth. So on my own journey to, again, shifting those thoughts that used to be looking down your fat, you know, go back to eating this, don't eat that, whatever my rules were at that time, I've reflected a lot on what changed me. You know, what was it? Because I didn't know that I had disordered eating. There was a point where I knew something was wrong, but it was, you know, nowadays, disordered eating is talked about so rampantly on the internet that somebody could say, I check these boxes, I have disordered eating, or some degree of disordered eating, I want to get help and seek a professional that is, you know, works with that, whether that's a registered dietitian or a therapist. For me, that wasn't the case. Disordered eating was a word that nobody knew. It was eating disorder or not, or you were fine. And therefore, I didn't have an eating disorder. I didn't have anorexia. I didn't have bulimia. And therefore, I was fine, quote unquote. So I was stuck in this gray area that had no, um, that kind of continued to my suffering because there wasn't a label for it. So I accidentally, I guess I would say, found myself on the journey to freedom. And I'd say the one thing that really changed my life and accidentally changed my life was yoga. Um, I think you're moving Mm. to New York City soon, right? Yes, in a few weeks. Yes, so excited for you. So there's this place, Moto Yoga, in the West Village. And I'm not naturally flexible. I couldn't even touch my toes six, seven years ago, probably eight years ago by now. (laughs) I remember my first yoga class was just painful in my body. I couldn't do any of the things. And I remember prior to that, you know, going to yoga and saying, this really isn't for me right now, but kind of knowing that there would be a time in my place when I could do it. You know, uh, keep in mind that in the height of my disordered eating, there was also exercise addiction and yoga didn't fit the box of cardio and strength training. And therefore, if I did yoga, I would then have to do another workout to make up for it, you know? So deep down, I guess I knew that I wasn't in the place for it then, but eventually I found some magic in it. And, you know, what's really amazing about yoga is it forces you to get still, even though you're moving. So I know that sounds a little funny, but you know, you're, it's awesome. Sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to talk over you. Um, Yeah. It forces you to get still, even though your body is moving and it takes you to this like place where you kind of naturally become the observer of your thoughts. And a lot of people struggle with meditation, myself then very much included. And I couldn't just sit there and get into my thoughts, but yoga was bringing me to this higher place. And when I looked into the mirror at yoga, which a lot of studios don't have mirrors, all of a sudden I was seeing something back at me. And it wasn't that I was seeing a different body in the sense that, oh, girl, you look hot. You finally got those abs that, you know, you always wanted and that booty and the legs and whatever. But it was like, okay, I see you. Keep in mind, I am, you know, naturally thin. I've always been thin and very thin privileged. So just for anyone listening that doesn't follow me, you know, this was a body image issue, not a, um, there weren't external things or people in my life that were ever, you know, told me that I should look any different than I did. This was all a very Mm -hmm. internal situation for me. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, I was looking at my body. And I noticed, you know, one of I noticed that my that my stomach was rounder, but I was okay with it. 
And it was again, shifting into that thank you body for allowing right. me to move and show up today. And okay, you know, knees, you look a little bit wrinkly today. I noticed myself kind of freaking out, you know, and being like, okay, I, I can do this. And there's something about yoga that's kind of hard for me to articulate, but it allows us, I guess, to kind of be that second person in the room, if you will, observing ourselves and seeing things differently. So that was a big Absolutely. change for me. That is so interesting that you were able to find it through this movement slash like moment because meditation for me is also so difficult to do to get still for a lot of us who are always on the go or want to sort of defy what is being put in front of us. So it's really, it's really, well, you make me want to try yoga, first of all, but second of all, so you clearly have had such an incredible experience with this that you are in the midst of yoga teacher training. So what was the moment where you were like, I really want to dedicate learning so much more to this? Yeah, you know, something that I think I always want to do in the back of my mind, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be a yoga teacher after this. I don't know where it's going to take me. But, um, you know, I knew that teach learning to teach yoga might take the magic away from me for a point of it. And I really wanted to leave the joy in yoga because it was this one place where I could just walk into a room and take my thinking cap off and get lost in somebody else guiding me. It's kind of, again, hard to explain if you've never experienced it, but it's like your body's moving. It's listening to the cues of the instructor, but not in the same way where you're in like a like a boot camp where you're overly focusing on like which muscles flexing. It's like you start to flow into it and then your brain goes to this other place. That's really delicious for lack of a better word. And so for a long time, I resisted training. I mean, I was also in grad school for all these things and I just knew that I needed the time for it. So what pushed me to do it? I think quarantine, you know, in the beginning of just, this is just a tool that I've been wanting to add to my toolbox for a long time. And, you know, I, I teach my, my students and my clients how to, reconnect with their bodies. So I teach what I call modern mindful eating, and it's reconnecting with the cues that are actually already there. So all I'm doing is helping you put a microphone and amplifying what's been silenced by what I call noise. And noise can be social media and media and your aunt Kathy at Thanksgiving talking about, you know, dieting or whatever, or it could be your own inner noise that I look down and I'm fat and circling that. And so I, my main reason, I guess I'd say to what made me want to really learn these tools is I want to help people get into their body and use the experience that really shaped me. So again, I don't know what I'm going to do with this exactly. It's just another mm -hmm. tool in my toolbox to reconnect people to their bodies and learn to move. And I say, touch them, touch themselves. It sounds a little sexual. That's not what I mean, mm -hmm. but I mean, if you want to take it in that way too, great. You know, re-exploring our bodies is super important, but touch their own bodies, be your own healer, put your hands on your shoulders, notice where you're holding tension, let it go. And again, that's just a way I could kind of help people do that. Absolutely. And like you said, this modern mindful eating and like your, your course fork the noise, I believe is how mm -hmm. is it. And it's like that itself the mindfulness part of it can get lost from when we are so rigidly like taught how to eat or how not to eat and we don't really know ourselves as much and like same with exercise that for me it's like the 
like coming out of diet culture or coming out of like a diet itself is a big deal. But then it's like, then what, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you don't have like the tools to do that by like whether or not, whether it's just a meal plan or if it's true, this true mindfulness, I think we all want to get to that place. Yeah. And, you know, I call it modern mindfulness because there's a lot of traditional mindful eating as it was, you know, established, which is wonderful practices that I encourage everybody to do when they can. But how can we bring that to life into everyday life so that we are honoring our bodies, not subscribing to diet culture, but we are, you know, making choices that really best benefit our body. And I just want to really reiterate how hard that is to come into after you gave away all of your superpowers, as I call them, to somebody else. And that's not to feel shameful or that it's impossible just to recognize for you and anybody listening that you're in a really hard place. And it's a beautiful place. It's my favorite place because what you need to continue to shift into is the willingness and the trust, if not in yourself right now, in me to know that you can get to a place where you understand your body's cues and sensations and you've broken down all the rules that you've either consciously or subconsciously taken down and that empowerment from within will come through. And my favorite part of all of this is it translates way beyond the food. You learn to yes, like does. and advocate for yourself. It's so, so true. It's like we, there's so many things that you can get away with showing or you can get away with like, quote, achieving, you know, like you can get away with being high achieving or having a job or whatever, even if it is a truly like obsessive and toxic personality trait. But with food, this thing that like is really keeping you alive, it's very hard to get away with having intense control over it without having to take that look at yourself. And it doesn't stop there because you I've noticed like the way that I was deeply ingrained into this like diet moment is a way that I was treating many other parts of both like my psyche, myself, my self-confidence and like how I believed uh, in myself. And it translates so much further into it just like being mindful about what I want. Like, do I want this life that I'm building for myself? And how do I really know what I want? And like that all happened because I took a moment and thought about why am I not eating carrots, you know? So it can start <laughs> so easy from no, a crazy exactly. place. You're considering you. And that is the part that the world has robbed us of. And if we're not constantly checking ourselves, noticing the noise, pulling ourselves back, I'm even going to say getting lost in it for a moment, um, and then coming back. If we're not constantly doing all that, I just want to reiterate that it's not linear. Oftentimes I'll get swooped into something only to, oh, gut check, this doesn't feel good. What am I doing? And then come back home. So I'd like to think of all journeys as falling out of alignment and then coming back rather than when we fall out of alignment, going into that place of, you know, um, self-sabotage or the, the speaking negatively to ourselves and just recognizing, again, bringing curiosity to it. I think curiosity is such a beautiful thing that we have squashed, um, but is naturally part of us. Bringing curiosity to everything. Why did I do this? Why? How did I get here? How can right. I get back? What tools do I have that I maybe didn't have in the past? And that's where the empowerment comes from. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's such a massive shift, but it's like, I think a lot of people, once they see someone doing something like yoga, meditation or something, they expect that if they do that, this area yeah. of their life, stress will be fixed. It'll be done. It's not a constant yeah. thing. And like 
So how have you sort of built up your toolbox to like do those gut checks on a daily basis? Like, is it your morning routine or is it just like one, a way of shifting your thoughts when you see them come up? Yeah, again, so the cool thing about getting to know yourself, your body, your sensations, your anxiety, your frustrations, all of that is that it's manifesting in your body usually quicker than you mentally can figure out what's going on. So um, I've been in therapy my whole life and only four, three, four years ago, I started seeing one therapist who does a type of therapy called AEDP. And I'm not really good at explaining it other than saying she helped me tremendously recognize that my body is always sending me cues physically and it's um, allows my mind to check in with myself. So just for an example, you know, we, we'd be talking about something and I'd say, feel quote unquote fine, but my leg would be like, let's say lightly bouncing. And I'd see her eyes look at it and it brought my attention to my leg. And then all of a sudden it was like a gut check of, oh, fuck, I'm sorry, I don't know if I could curse on your podcast, but oh, F, you know, I, okay, oh, fuck, you know, I, I'm not fine. And then the waterworks would be there three seconds later, and all of a sudden I'm checking in with, with that point. And it's not always like that. I'm not, you know, in every single part of the day, I'm not doing that that formal process, but checking into what it feels like when I'm emotionally triggered by family members. You know, usually that's most people's very reactive spot and it's the hardest place to work on and I continue to have to work on it and struggle with it. But, you know, all of a sudden my shoulders are up to my ears or maybe they're not, but I feel this light tension coming up my neck. It's like, okay, wait, don't don't say the words you want to say take a moment, breathe, maybe, you know, do a little exercise where you bring your shoulder, your ears up to your shoulder and then drop them down a little bit lower just to relieve that tension, check in with yourself and then say something. And again, just reiterating that I mess this up all the time because I'm an emotional human being and that's okay. Exactly. It's like you don't, just because you have the tools doesn't mean that every time something comes up, you are deep in that toolbox, you know, like we are human beings. And that is a really powerful thing to think about because I feel like I've all, um, I've resonated a lot with your content because I don't always feel stress in my head. Like Mm -hmm. in my mind, I don't recognize when things are going on until I get a sinus infection or until Mm -hmm. my like body is hurting in some way. And I'm like, well, what, I, I'm, nothing's wrong with me. Like it's not stress. And my mom's like, oh, I think it must be stress. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no, it isn't. And until you have the moment where you focus on like, okay, this is actually a signal and that's something I need to think about. But I always have let the signals get to an extreme and something your content has really taught me is that like you can think about the signals on a daily basis. It doesn't need to get to a place of, you know, in the hospital. And, and when it does, however, you know, going back to kind of that original question of I'm doing all the things right and it's not, I forget how you worded this question, but, you know, it's very easy to think you're doing all the things right. And then when you still get sick, for example, you kind of throw in the towel. And we think that if we don't, you know, if we give up alcohol or chocolate or whatever mm-hmm. it is, like where we have greens three times a day for yeah. a month and we still don't, quote unquote, lose the weight, like whatever, whatever it is, our goal is if we're not getting there because of a behavior that we added or took away, we throw in the towel. And health is not prescriptive like that. There is no checkbox. Your body is 
a chemistry project, so to speak, and therefore knowing its exact needs by way of what you've been told to do or what you're doing might not be exact, but Mm -hmm. there's, there's some wisdom there that you need to kind of recognize that doesn't mean that you need to, um, that you've done anything wrong just because you've gotten to that place of getting sick, even though you checked the boxes, maybe you missed out Mm -hmm. on rest or water or some basics, you know, so before you throw in the towel, just recognize that health is complex and emotions definitely play a role in getting sick. And of course we want to catch it before we get to the hospital, but um, these symptoms can also tie, I, I like to kind of see them as a gift because without them, if they're not too extreme, again, not hospitalization, can be the most obvious gut check-in sign that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. They force us to slow down. Right. They do force us to slow down. And that's like you said, the complexity of it is something we've lost maybe in the wellness space of thinking like the, there are quick fixes or foods or um, even and like the true wellness of it is recognizing the complexity and being able to sit with that and enjoy life and see things as gifts as well. So true. I really appreciate that. So um, two questions I wanted to ask you are one, what is the societal norm that you feel like you've sort of realized that it doesn't really work for you? And then what's one that actually does work with work for you? Hmm. So can you give me an example of what Sure, sure. Like? So like a societal norm would be like a, the traditional idea of marriage or the idea of like you need to exercise like five times a week, those types of things. Got it. Got it. Hmm. Good question. Traditional norm that works for me. Um, I think just because you gave the example of marriage, that's definitely one that I'm in. But I, it works for me right now. And I, that's all I can kind of say about that. I hope that it works yeah. in the future. But I think that recognizing that, you know, there's a concept called impermanence that um, Pima Shodron, I say that, it's hard to say her name very well, but talks about a lot. And it's the things, the idea that things naturally fall apart. And while I never want my relationship to fall apart and I'm, you know, I love my husband so much, it's important not to force things that aren't there anymore. And when two people are growing, you hope that they grow in the same direction. Um, But uh, sometimes you don't. And that doesn't mean that somebody failed. So that's just something that I kind of always try to bring to the front of my mind so that I can stay present and connected. Um, So I'm in that one. But I think in general, I might not subscribe to it for everybody, if that makes sense. I don't think marriage is for everybody, even though I am married. (laughs) Totally. I think that's an important one to talk about, too, is Um, as we, as my generation sort of gets older, like I think the idea of marriage or even just like taking the last name of your partner is something Mm -hmm. that when I was in college, people would be like, I would never take my partner's last name. And I'd be like, actually, I really hate my last name. So I might do it, but not because of like, uh, this like quote patriarchal thing being placed on me, but because of like, just like basic wants and needs, you know? So, but that idea of, yeah, that idea of impermanence though, is like, I love because it doesn't, I don't know, we we really just start to get so upset with ourselves when something doesn't end up perfect. But in reality, like maybe it wasn't ever meant to be like that. Right. And things are always changing um, from the seasons to our bodies 
and recognizing the impermanence things kind of moves us forward. And I love kind of seeing that as my body doesn't look like my 17 year old body because that wouldn't best support me. And the way that comes into season play is like, oh, I'm so sad that fall's ending because it's so beautiful and winter's so ugly. It's like, nope, all things are just impermanent. This is a cycle that things go through. Um, something that I don't subscribe to, I guess, anymore would be the thin ideal. Um, it's mm-hmm. very, um, uh, you know, most of us really ingra- it's ingrained into our beliefs that bigger bodies are not healthy period and smaller bodies are healthy period. And it's even something that is taught to us in school by way of the BMI chart, which takes into consideration your height and your weight period, not your gender or your age or anything else um, or your or your um, race even or you know mm-hmm. anything about you. And one of the, the things that I've really sought out to learn is that you know, health can exist at every size and it can also not exist at every size. So you could be too, you could be thin and not healthy and in a bigger body and healthy. And therefore there are so many other markers that we need to look at when evaluating somebody health, somebody's health and in order to give them the best health recommendations rather than what's kind of like, um, my friend Caitlin Denae, who's a trainer, calls it lazy coaching. When, you know, they say burn off the donuts, you know, do 10 more pushups. Like that's lazy training, she calls it. I'd call it like lazy mm-hmm. nutritioning, you know, like what can I do to make somebody's health better? That's not just lose weight because that's actually going to negatively impact th- both their physical health and their mental health down the line. Wow. And I think to hear that from a dietitian is a really big deal. Yeah. And, you know, when I started talking about this, this stuff, not to the level that I am now at this point, I've learned from so many people in my industry. But when I started, quote unquote, ditching the diet four years ago, it was not well received. It what you know, I was a trailblazer, quote unquote, is kind of funny. (laughs) You know, I was up against, as you know, the New York City big dogs that were normalizing disordered eating behavior in a way that I knew all too well from myself. And while I didn't, I'm still continuing to learn about um, thin privilege and different body sizes. And I learned so much from people of different races and cultures by listening to their content about how they were, even you, how you were kind of like marginalized out of this conversation because everybody in your sorority was, you know, white and thin and you were aspiring to be what you're not. You know, all these yeah. conversations were so eye opening to me because I also grew up around, you know, white, thin people. So that's all I knew. And we're all pursuing looking one way. And it's like, wait a minute, big step back here. We weren't meant to all look one way. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> like, how did I, how did I not realize this? Right. Exactly. We're not actually supposed, like our bodies would all look the same way if they were supposed to, but they don't. Right. So what for you, like you say you, I, and I know you did because I had seen everything you've posted for years about being against the diet. Why do you think our society is going against that right now? Ah, oh, good question. Um, well, it was certainly happening. I feel like there's been a big uptick recently. Um, but I think politics do play a big role in it. I think while I didn't realize it for a long time, um, this all kind of comes down to 
oppressing women in some way and women waking up and recognizing that they're here to do more than that. Um, and kind of, I don't want to get into politics for, I don't think it's my particular forte. I'm not, I, I'm not very well spoken on the matter, but a lot of people either woke up to one idea that they didn't want something in their life and then it maybe led to food. Um, and rethinking kind of dieting in general and everything we've been told. Of course, yeah. I mean, like I even mentioned with you before, my moment of realizing that the dieting was just a waste of time was when George Floyd protests started really taking over and I wanted to spend my energy, you know, focusing on raising money or helping or bringing awareness to that situation and helping all the white people who were really waking up to this for the first time, as opposed to counting my carbs and calories. Wow. Yeah. I think that that's, that's huge. Um, And oftentimes when you kind of just open your mind to challenging things that we've been told, um, one thing leads to the next. And so you know, this was a big year for a lot of reasons and all the things that were stagnant got unstuck in some ways and that caused things to crumble and therefore, you know, statues that were, so to speak, um, that were very firm in 2019 did not expect their big crumbling in 2020 because they had stood there for so long. Obviously, this is metaphorical, so to speak. Um, But everything that was, you know, stagnant and in the ground and gospel and and just, you know, truth, we we questioned it. I also want to say we had time. We had time to question it. We were home. We were not doing our nine to five jobs, you know, rinse, repeat, start over the next day. We had time to really challenge ourselves, even read a book, even consume more social media content. Totally. I mean, like a lot of things I don't think would have happened. I don't think I personally would have had a second to sit down and learn what disorder eating even was if we hadn't had this. I would have really continued into it, graduated college and just kept up with doing things just because everyone else was. I, I still can't believe how new you are to the whole thing and how advanced you are. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's it's so weird that this all happened in the last eight months. It's, it's wild. Amazing. It's amazing. It, it is wild. But yeah, so this has been so great. I have loved talking to you. Can we do a, um, well, a few more questions? Of one course. is what is one resource that has helped you learn like exponentially? It could be a book. It could be the yoga itself, something like that. Um, so one would be, it's called the power of awareness. And I did it in June right after, was it right? I think it was right after the week of George Floyd and, you know, amplifying melanated voices, that whole thing. And I didn't mean to, I actually signed up for it back in April and the timing was kind of perfect. And this is a course that is taught by Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield, who are two, um, mindfulness trailblazers bought, brought it here really. Um, and it's a seven week online course, self-paced, and it really taught me tools about how to listen to that inner dialogue, how to, again, listen to those, those thoughts that are on repeat, um, and hear the voices in my head in a new way. And it also helped me establish a meditation practice, which has been really big for me. 
Wow. Yes. Um, I definitely will look into that. Sounds amazing in terms yeah, I like, I give you a link in the show notes. Yes, I think the next be- one comes out January 4th, but they run all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like a really big course, like over 20,000 people have taken. Oh, wow. It. Yeah. It's like a monster and, and you're not, you know, people all over the world are in it because they're very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard the names for. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's amazing. Um, Okay, so now I would love to do a little bit of a rapid fire moment with you. Okay, great. Okay, so would you choose appetizers or dessert? Appetizers. But in my disordered eating days, dessert. Mm, Let's see so much nuance to that. (laughs) Okay. Um, Instagram or TikTok? I don't know if you're a TikToker. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Okay, favorite TV show of all time? Probably Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it. Do you know what it is? I I've seen like commercials and I have never watched it. I mean, it's there. There hasn't been a new season in a long time, but he's a good serial killer. I highly suggest. Oh, okay, I might be <laughs> into that. My boyfriend certainly would. Um, oh, he kills bad people. Oh, love it. Okay, I'll put it on my list. Okay, then in the same vein, what's your favorite podcast? favorite podcast maybe maybe yours now um <laughs> let me see what i what i've listened to most recently let's see um there's there's a few i can't just give one i love the nourishing women's podcast i love four things with amy brown of course i love freckled foodie and friends i love oh well this is kind of random but um online marketing made easy with amy porterfield mm. i don't have just one you need therapy my friend kat defada that's such a good one Sorry, I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I have like a million. I listen to so many. You knew. Um, Okay. Most important self-care practice? Time alone. Um, It doesn't, I mean, I am alone all day working and stuff, but really like time to just pare down in some way, some ritual. Mm -hmm. And I want to just let, make it less um, defined so that you get to do it. Right. I love that. I think I've learned that about myself this year for sure. All right. My final question is, could you finish this sentence with something you want young people to know? You are too smart for. You're too smart for. You have in my head, you're too smart to diet from you always saying that. (laughs) Um, You're too smart to not get to know your intuition. Love that. Thank you so, so much, Lisa, for coming on and for sharing all of your incredible wisdom and for also just being a great mentor to me. I really appreciate it. And you to me. So thanks for giving that back. Thank you so much for listening to the Too Smart for This podcast. Be sure to leave a review if you liked it. It takes two seconds. And follow the show on Instagram at Too Smart for This Pod. Check back every Tuesday and Friday for new episodes. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Alexis Barber for more content about lifestyle, health, and career. And don't forget, you're too smart to not love yourself.